Welcome back to another episode of Tooling Talks. I'm your host, Chris, and we have yet another great episode for you this month. In fact, it's so great that it will actually be two parts. For this first episode with Anton, we got to chat about all things cross-building, the various platforms you can run your Scala code on, and also about the work it takes to not only maintain projects with multiple Scala versions, but also for those publishing for various platforms. Anton has been an absolute joy to interact with online, he's helpful, he works on all sorts of open source projects, and he's another NeoVim user, which might just be his best trait yet. So without further ado, let's dive in. Thanks for joining. All right, welcome back to another episode of Tooling Talks. I'm very excited to have with me today Anton. Thank you for joining me. Can you go ahead and give a short introduction of yourself? Uh, hello, I'm Anton. I'm uh, currently not working anywhere. I'm an occasional open source contributor. I maintain and help maintain some open source tools in Scala, and I am a serial rabbit hole diver. So okay. Probably that's why I'm here. Yes, that is a great introduction. Yes, actually, that's like a perfect segue into this sort of the reason of why I wanted to have you on the show, because a lot of the people that I've talked to so far are sort of known for like one specific tool that they've written or that they maintain, um, or maybe even a couple different tools. Um, and that's sort of it. And we focused on one individual topic. But even for myself, I've realized that I've sort of been like spattering contributions all over the place. And I always see your spatterings all over the place as well, not in just one individual uh, project. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to chat with you specifically about just, yeah, how you found contributing to open source, how you decide what projects you contribute to, and just how that whole process has gone for you, because you seem to be very involved in a whole bunch of different types of tooling instead of just focusing on one area of tooling. So yeah, how, maybe how, a good start to that would be how did you get involved in open source and how did you, have you sort of started to pick on, on what you contribute to? Um, I contributed to open source very, very little until um, the year 2020, when something happened. I don't know. Uh, something happened. Something. Things have changed. So, some event happened. Uh, before that, I would occasionally contribute. Like I had like one contribution to Mill, where I was removing like a progress bar. I, w I had one contribution to maybe SBT, um, and that would be about it. But that was basically all in the sort of the, the day's work, the things that I needed to get into the tools that we were using. Um, and then I think during 2020, there was a lot of kind of uncertainty in how, like, how much should you focus on one work because the work just would never end because everyone's working from home. And so the 14 hour days were starting to set in and um, it was kind of, it was pretty depressing. So I think open source was more of a, like a, an escape mechanism because like, even though I'm spending 14 hours a day in front of a computer, maybe I should start controlling and basically splitting this between the, the work stuff. Hmm. And the stuff that I actually always wanted to do, because I lustfully looked at the open source projects and the open source maintainers, and I looked at them through the window. Do you know that, like GIF, when there is rain falling down on the window, and just looking at them, thinking, "Oh, they're having all the fun. They're like building things that other people enjoy. They get to enhance their skill sets." I wanted that, but I just didn't know exactly how to get into it, and hmm. um, I had very few interests outside of. Uh, the stuff that I was working on, which was mostly functional Scala at the time. And uh, I think the segue into the open source started, if I remember correctly, with MDoc, actually, because okay. I, I was building an internal library um, for, I was working at Disney at the time. And um, 
that internal library was supposed to be quite central. It had to do with logging. So it was supposed to be used in a distributed fashion so that it, it, it was not going to be like me coming in and telling everyone how to use a library. I was hoping that people could asynchronously read some documentation and then start using it and basically get get to learn it without the direct involvement of the, you know, reduce that bus factor or increase yeah. the bus factor. I never knew, like... Which one is the right one? Do you reduce yeah, it? Do you increase it? Increase the bus factor, I think, yeah. because you get more people involved. Yeah. Or okay. maybe reduce the bus factor. I actually, yeah. I, I've never actually See? thought of that. But yes, exactly. <laughs> I think get rid of the bus factor would probably be a yeah. good thing. So, so okay. I didn't want to be like the sole maintainer. So I was hoping that more people would be involved if the documentation itself was helpful to get started and to develop as well. Mm-hmm. So I decided that given that it's an internal library, it's not on a strict like a update schedule, release schedule, binary compatibility schedule. So I was like, I'm going to change a lot of things. I want to use MDoc to keep the examples up to date because they will be the driving force. Mm-hmm. And then one thing led to another. I was getting more and more involved with MDoc and I was just kind of looking at how it worked. It seemed like magic to me, to be honest, at the time. Some bits still do, like the the whole the JavaScript part. Uh, I started getting involved, I think, on um, on Gitter at the time. Uh, in the MDoc room, and that kind of got me into it. And then I had a couple of big contributions to MDoc with like the Scala.js support and the Scala 3 support. And that set me off on the path of actually looking at other things that I use and where can I be helpful. And I think the Scala 3 transition was happening at the same time. Like a lot of libraries were very short-staffed so that you, you would have libraries which have been used by many people, but they didn't have anyone actively working on like Scala 3 support, for example, yeah. or adding Scala.js support or something like that. So those those were the low-hanging fruits where I um, basically exponentially increased my knowledge of the build tools, the process, like how everything fits together, and the contribution process, just adding Scala 3 support and Scala.js support to a few random libraries and building some, some, of, some of my own, like internally, just trying yeah. th- things out. Cool. So there's like a ton of stuff that you just talked about that I would love to dive into. But yeah, before we dive into any of the individual projects or anything that you've been working on. Yeah, I also wanted to state that like I actually like resonate a lot with the whole like looking through the window at people that have created something that and because I've been the same way. Like when I first got involved with metals, it was sort of me jumping along on somebody else's project and like helping out is kind of how I, I viewed it. And then even getting involved in some of the other tooling, it's always sort of been that for me. And I've also like from a distance always envied, oh, like I, I want to create something too. Like I want to, you know, think of a cool idea and create something and have people use it and be like, oh, this is amazing. And I, I yeah, I, I go back and forth, but whether that's like a good thing or like a dangerous thing of thinking like, oh, you're not necessarily contributing to the ecosystem if you haven't like created something crazy that people really enjoy. But I think it's also just like equally as valuable to to do the things that you did on MDoc or to for me helping on the metals or different things like that because yeah you you obviously not everybody can all come up with crazy ideas and create them and then have them all become you know popular so I think it's I think they shouldn't like I don't think people should even aim for that to be honest like uh, we can talk about it a bit later but I think uh, our as an industry maintenance of existing tools is lacking and we're not mm. getting like. It takes such an immense amount of effort to get any tool to a point where it's actually usable by yeah. a large group of people on large group of platforms. So, and that 
journey is very rarely done by a single person coming up with a great idea and then doing the all the work by themselves from scratch without looking at any prior art. Yeah. So I think people shouldn't be aiming specifically to build new things from the get-go. Contributions are actually, I think, driving the industry a bit further uh, huh. in the long run. That's my thinking about it. Yeah, that's a good thought. Because I also think maybe in the Scholar ecosystem, that hits us even harder. Because as you're probably aware, I can think of you know multiple tools in the Scholar ecosystem that probably every single developer interacts with knowingly or unknowingly that is maintained by, you know, one person basically or primarily one person so we mentioned bus factor already but i think there's like a huge problem in the ecosystem oh, yeah. with that with bus with with the with the, the bus factor because yeah if, if somebody just decided tomorrow you know what i don't want to work on this anymore and they have every right to to do that like then what happens like it's a uh, something that we should probably often think about and I and also I want to add that I don't think the answer because I hear I hear people say this a lot is why doesn't the Scala Center just pick that up and do it then? And yeah. I don't think people necessarily realize that the Scala Center is already doing like an incredible amount of work maintaining different tools, and they can't just pick up every stray tool that's not being you know maintained to the level of what people what people want. And also, Scala Center is not really like a Fortune 500 company with 18,000 employees who are just sitting there twiddling their thumbs and waiting to, to yeah. pick up an open source project. So it's not really a thing that big, even though I believe that some things should be within the purview of what Scala Center does, but mm-hmm. they cannot pick up every single library, every single tool that is abandoned by a sole contributor, yeah. uh, which happens quite a lot th- these days. I think like a lot of people are driving out into the woods to herd goats and like make <laughs> cheese or whatever because they're tired of the IT industry. So I think we're going to see more of that in the, yeah. long, in the long run. You mentioned, and normally I ask this question like way later on, but because we're talking about it already, like I'm curious as well about a little bit of the experience of getting started. Like how, like, did you find it a welcoming community to get started with? Did you find people were helpful? Looking back, is there things you would have told yourself like, hey, like keep in mind these things? Or even if somebody came to you now and said, hey, I really want to get involved in open source. How do I do that? Like, how would you answer those questions? I think I had various experiences, to be honest. Like, um, the most dissonant uh, thought that I had was... So, I was a, um, I was quite an experienced developer by the time I first started contributing to open source. So, writing code or, like, writing maintainable code is a thing I believe in. Uh, and um, when I was first contributing somewhere, I, I met with uh, the, the maintainers being very helpful and, like, very thorough with their reviews. But I was also assuming maybe the maintainers are trying trying a bit too hard, like maybe they're nitpicking a bit too much and etc. That was my first impression because I wasn't familiar. And then I matured a little bit. I, I, I've done a lot of growing up in the last two years, to be honest. Like it's been pretty, pretty dramatic. It's like going through second puberty. Um, I didn't, I haven't gone through the first one yet. So I'm looking forward to that one. And, um, uh, and um, I realized that they have a reason to nitpick because I, people like me will come and go. Right, they they will drop in, send a PR. They will fix one thing, but the burden of maintenance is still going to be on that one person who is authoring the project. Like at the time, Olaf was the the BDFL for uh, MDoc, for example, and Olaf was very thorough on my PRs, and I appreciate it now. In the like in the very beginning, I, I thought, I mean, so some some of those things, let's just let it slide. But then also from Olaf's point of view, I think. 
he's the one maintaining MDoc. Like, he's the main maintainer. He's the main author. He's likely going to be maintaining it for much longer than an occasional contributor might. So I think we're in that position where maintainers are in a like a losing position of they have to be very careful about what's being accepted uh, and managing those expectations and the quality of code that goes in i think is really important because otherwise um you know contributors come and go but yeah. maintainers are sort of that they still have have to bear most of the burden so it kind of shifts the balance of power there it's no longer like in a in a work environment where you have a team ownership right and like everybody's yeah. expected to pull their weight in open source is very very lopsided which i think is part of a much larger problem but also it changes the way you approach that coding problem so i think people contributing to open source for the first time have to be inexperienced they will see that 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 first change is that someone is telling them to change a lot of things about the code that they wrote yeah. for a good reason, which they might not understand at first. So I think that's mm. a like a, a subtle thing that you must uh, come come to uh, kind of to deal with and to internalize that. Basically, yeah. they will be there forever maintaining this thing. Yeah, especially if it's a larger PR, not you know a thirty line change or yeah. something. Yeah, it's interesting you you talk about that because like, well, first of all, I mean. I'll never not give Olaf some praise for the open source work that he's done. But like, yeah, yeah like he, he's incredible, incredible at that. And I think part of the reason is probably because sometimes some people are, are maintaining so many various projects that like they want to do as little as possible to keep a project going and afloat. So being thorough is is important where <laughs> I, I don't want to give like specifics, but even for myself, I've recently noticed I'm really bad at that because if I am maintaining a project that I have zero interest in anymore and somebody sends in a PR, I'm pretty quickly to just be like, I don't care. This seems fine. Like merge. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I recently did that and something I didn't look as closely as I should have and it had to be reverted and it was completely my fault just because it, and it, we'll talk about this more too, but it had to do with cross-platform support and I don't really use cross-platform support. So I had like even less inclination to pay attention to it and I just like merged it at the ready. Um, oh, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I know yeah, what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and afterwards, it was like a learning learning. Uh, it was a learning experience for me as well to be like, oh shit, like that that was not a that was not a smart move, and like it, it also caused me to look back and be like, should I be maintaining this thing anymore that I don't care about? Like, I, I viewed it as a good thing because you know you keep the project alive, you make releases, people can still use it, and that's a and that's a good thing because like nobody else is maybe doing that. Um, but then it, it challenges how you spend your time on, you know, reviewing PRs where, like you said, Olaf was really good at it and, you know, was very thorough on it, even though he may not have been actively working on it at the time, where, like, I parallel that to me not actively working on something and just being like, whatever. Yeah. It's also difficult and unfair expectation from you to not only to have to maintain a project, but also to know all of the aspects of all the platforms where Scala is working, for example. Because mm-hmm. the, the problem in there that you faced, are, are you talking about the S coverage thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like that thing, I've read the issue about the fake random stuff multiple times. And I'm not boiling in that particular kettle. So for me... I know, ex- I know roughly what it's all about. I don't really care that much. So if someone were to send a PR to one of my projects doing that exact same thing, on a good day, I hope I would catch it. On a bad day, no chance. Like, there's just no way for me to know everything. And yeah, like, if you're maintaining multiple projects like you are, it's it's an unfair expectation to catch everything. Yeah. And this could, you know, segue into how people, when something goes wrong with tools, how 
they forget about that and assume that the author of the tool or the maintainer of the tool is a benevolent know-it-all who's yeah. responsible for all things in life and death and yeah. etc. Yeah, I mean, since you messaged, yeah, I might as well just say what it is. So yeah, I like was maintaining S coverage, and there was, from my understanding, uh, an insecure implementation of random UUID generation in Scala JS. So uh, that was noticed in Scala JS, and they literally just removed it completely. And then, in order for you to upgrade, the upgrade path was either to include a, a secure implementation package that that they've included, but it doesn't work on all uh, Scala JS platforms. Uh, or an insecure drop-in replacement. Um, and for myself, looking around, I saw that some other pretty prominent ScalaJS projects were using the insecure one. From how I saw it working in my head, I was like, oh, this is not a big deal at all. Like the UUID generation is just like random IDs that we're using to match, you know, coverage statements up against other coverage. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter in my head. And I quickly yeah. just dropped in the insecure package and, and called it a day when realistically I could have just like introduced like hey you know vulnerability to every user of s coverage which to be honest is you know millions of downloads a month so that didn't make me feel super great that i did that but yeah after the fact there was been an interesting conversation about it about you know should should this package even exist should we should we provide ways for people to shoot themselves in the foot um and also it answer it like brings up the question that i just talked about about like if you if you don't have any experience necessarily in cross-platform support and you don't even use the cross-platform supports it's hard to to put in that effort for for cross-platform support especially it's not just one javascript right because yeah. there's node.js there's dino as a runtime yeah. there's browser runtime and there is like five different versions of ECMAScript. So who who has the time to know all of that? Like, I, yeah. I don't know all of that. I write a lot of ScalaJS code, but I just try to ignore it. So it's hmm. it, it's it's a crazy complicated problem for what it is. Like, compile yeah. Scala to JavaScript, right? How easy can that be? <laughs> and that, uh, this is like, we'll, like, we'll use that as a segue, I guess, into the one of the things I wanted to talk about. Because you, you said, oh, you know, I read a lot of Scala.js. And I also see you doing a lot of work in Scala Native as well. So let's talk about some various Scala platforms, because this is something we have, I haven't really talked to a lot of people about. And to be honest, I'm not very well versed in. And I'm I'll just be honest. I'm I'm quite skeptical of as well. So okay, um, yeah, and so like I guess like one thing that I've come across that we we've sort of touched on a little bit as well is you know in Scala a lot of people will sort of complain about like the burden of cross compiling your libraries. And don't get me wrong, for some libraries it is a huge burden. Like especially jumping from like two eleven to two thirteen range. Like two eleven and two thirteen is is a different beast, you know. But you know. If I already have a 2.13 library and I need to add Scala 3 support or 2.12, 2.13, like those cross compilation things aren't a huge deal for me. But I've personally found that cross platform support is just way more difficult because especially as a, a, as a library maintainer or a maintainer of a project, when, when the request comes in to support native or JS, if you're not familiar with those ecosystems, you're just, it's introducing a whole bunch of overhead that is either hard for the person possibly to maintain because they don't know anything about it or they're relying on somebody else from the community to maintain those things. But like you said earlier, sometimes it's somebody that drops in, notices they want support, knows what they need to do, they add support, and then they're gone. And so like, I, I find the cross-platform support way harder than the cross-compiling like, cross support in Scala. Yeah, because in a way... Um... 
if we boil it down to a very primitive view of the whole thing, like cross-compiling for a particular Scala version is invoking a particular version of the Scala compiler jar with a class path and a set of source files. That is all easy. Um, with the cross-platform stuff, there's a lot of different things involved, like uh, for Scala.js and Scala.native, your jar resolution, dependency resolution has to be different. Um, with if, if you're using like Scala 3, uh, for example, Scala.native publishes all of their libraries for Scala 3. Scala.js doesn't. You're always using the Scala 2.13 library. So it leads to a lot of interesting stuff, which is supposed mm -hmm. to be abstracted away by the plugin, but not necessarily so like in all of the scenarios, especially if you want to use things that work on Scala 3, are promised to work on Scala 3, like uh, this cross-version stuff like uh, 4.3 use 2.13. That stuff works differently with Scala Native and Scala JS than it does with regular Scala JVMs. So there's a lot of um, difficulty involved, and we're not even touching on the parts where you're using some, um, some stuff from the yeah. Java standard library, which doesn't exist on the platforms, for example. Like the, the Java time, bit is a nightmare it's like it's a burden on anyone and it's mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how experienced you are with cross-platform stuff you have to bring in a, a gigantic scala java yeah. time dependency because the java time api is huge yeah. neither scala native nor scala js implemented so you need to know this right yeah well also before we go too far in that you mentioned something in passing that I, i'm not going to assume that everybody is super aware of so like you mentioned uh 4.3 use 213 i think yep. is what it's called can you explain to everybody sort of what that even means for people that yeah. might be aware uh, of it so when Scala 3 was announced, I think one of the things that caused um, the most skepticism uh, was the promise that Scala 3 compiler would be able to read Scala 2.13 libraries, as long as I think if, if they're compiled with like a latest 2.13 version. And um, that was designed to ease the transition from Scala 2.13 to Scala 3. Yeah. And as a, as a side note, I have a couple of like internal libraries, well, had a couple of internal li libraries where just switching a Scala code base from 2.13 to 3 was literally updating the compiler version and the code would compile without changes. So that was that's kind of uh, quite late in the game that became a possibility. But until then, the idea was that not everyone will be able to cross-compile straight away. So SBT added a, an ability uh, for Scala 3 projects to reference Scala 2.13 libraries. Yeah. And to do that, you had to place like a particular attribute on a dependency. And it's, it spells literally 4.3 use 2.13. And I'm very glad that it spells exactly that because it, it's very clear. Because there's another one for 2.13 use 3. Yeah. They, I'm glad that they didn't go with a, like a clever name. Uh, I think one of the names uh, this is known by is like a Scala 2.13 sandwich or like Scala 3 sandwich. I don't like that name, but give me the 4.3 use 2.13, please. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that entire name. I'd like clarity in my build. Yes, I totally agree. You you mentioned that for Scala.js, for example, that you have to use that because they don't cross-publish for Scala 3, whereas Scala Native does. Do you know why Scala.js doesn't cross-publish for 3? To be honest, I'm I'm not sure. Like it, it's been like this with several projects maintained by Sebastian Doran, uh -huh. and uh, I think Portable Scala Reflect is one which will, uh, as a as a clear decision, they will never publish a Scala three version uh, for some of the reflection stuff that they're doing. I, I think is still the case. Uh, I don't yeah. know if that's changed. Um, I think it's still yeah only two thirteen artifacts. So it's just it, it's just the way it works. Um, yeah. Well, there will have to be a time in the future where that 
changes a little bit, right? Because, like, I mean, it's way in the future, I'm assuming, but the, even you could look at the collections library in the same the same way, where you you know you have on your class path when you're using Scala three two thirteen collections, and it's probably the same concept idea with Scala JS, I guess. But there will be a time in the future, I'm sure, where those things will have to be rewritten in Scala three ultimately. So, yeah, I'm curious yep. what the decision to to not do it right away would would be. So, um. You seem pretty ex- like experienced with the various platforms, and what, uh, in your opinion, would make sort of the cross-platform support easier for maintainers? Or do you have any ideas of, of what that could be? A while back, I submitted a proposal to SBT. Well, it's not a proposal. I, I, I've seen people submitting actual, yeah. yeah, in the discussion. Like I've yeah, seen people that. submitting actual proposals. Like they put work into it. Yeah, I converted a message from Discord into. A message on on discussion so i feel very proud of that one bravo you know. bravo <laughs> thank you honestly it's you know you gotta do what you gotta do it's tough work but someone's gotta do it and um it was about unifying and providing native support within sbt because i'm talking about sbt uh just because mill for example has direct support for scala native and scala js it's not a plugin it's there it's in the internals of mill yeah and i'm talking about sbt because it doesn't it uses the extensibility model, which works reasonably well, but also because SBT accounts for a gigantic proportion of Scala users, like the vast majority of Scala users. So yeah. um, I think if SBT had direct support for Scala.js modules and the whole idea of like matrix builds. So I, I think uh, Eugene Yokata has a, a plugin called SBT Project Matrix. I've been a proponent of it because it sort of, it blurs the line between the SBT cross project, which is used for cross-platform compilation yeah. and the whole like cross Scala compilation, cross version. So it blurs the line and says, we're just building matrices and we're connecting matrices to each other and that's it. Like there is no difference between them. You're just generating projects. Yeah. We're using uh, this particular plugin in Weaver, which um, is the testing framework that I maintain with um, Olivier. And we have like 95 projects in there and they all depend on each other. Some don't have Scala 3 support. Some don't have Scala JS support. Some are not published for Cats Effect 3. Some are published. So it's a very complicated build matrix, but because we're using SBT project matrix, setting up that build was not difficult at all. Like mm. it took me maybe a couple of days um, to do that, but it's been fine. So okay. um, I, I, I'm hoping that if SBT had native support for those matrices where you know that some of your sub-projects don't support this thing or are not, are not published yeah. for this particular Scala version. If you can make that easier, if you can make diagnostics easier, and if you can make the dependency resolution clearer. I even yeah. created like a website called <laughs> You Forgot a Percentage Sign or a Column. Yeah. Because first of all, I have a Google Domains account, which is a horrible financial decision because I've recently registered another domain. Um, but I, I can't stop. I should really, really stop. But... And another one is because it, it came up multiple times, like it keeps yeah. coming up. And I think it's a reasonable expectation that as, as Scala.js is gaining more and more popularity with more libraries being developed specifically for Scala.js, yeah. there should be a much better support in the build tool. Like it shouldn't be a burden of knowledge, right? Nobody should be expected to know all of those quirks and those little tricks about the class path. They should be all, the, the build tool should be doing it for you. Uh, mm. who, who's gonna do that work? I mean, it has one maintainer currently, SBT. So who's going to do that work? Nobody knows. Yeah, true. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to make it clear, I guess, when you say native support, maybe can you expand a little bit on what that would look like from a U, from just like a pure UX perspective? Like if, I, if I'm, you know, I have my build, I have, you know, a few different modules that are, you know, JVM modules, and I want to add in Scala.js support. Can you give an overview of what that means now, like what you need to do versus what you okay. think it should be? So you have a, a Scala library, right? Yeah. Uh, you have a build in there. The first thing to do, if you want to add Scala.js support and you want to cross-compile your library, you need to add the Scala.js plugin. If you want to cross-compile the library, you need to add one of the two plugins, SBT cross-project or SBT project matrix. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're going with SBT project matrix. You need to change your build definition to be a project matrix on which you need to say, I'm publishing for JVM platform uh, for those color versions. I'm publishing for JS platform for those versions. I'm publishing for native platform for those versions. Yep. And to be honest, like that would be it with SBT project matrix. But then things start get a bit hairier. Like if you have any dependencies and they're using like double percentage sign in the dependency specification, you need to convert them to triple percentage sign. Yep. Is SBT going to tell you to do that because you have a Scala.js project? Not really, because it doesn't really understand that. Like it doesn't, because it's a plugin on top of it, it's not going to tell you that the specification is incorrect. Yep. You're going to get linking errors. Or actually, if you're just publishing a Scala.js library, the users of that library will get linking errors down the line. Yeah. So... That's where the issues are, basically. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very... That happened to me recently, actually. I forgot to add it to MUnit for my tests. So every, all my tests were passing just fine, even though I was supporting Scala.js, publishing Scala.js jar, but not actually testing Scala.js because I, for, I, I forgot that. Yeah, exactly. So the build tool is doing exactly what you're told like what you told it to do um it's resolving the jars it's running some tests but it's not linking the scala js for example and then you're getting those errors um in the world where this is all native there will be no plugins you you just basically your your project definition will by default have a method on it saying like enable scala js enable scala native one there will be no difference between percentage signs you just specify your dependencies as you as you did and the build tool will tell you that you know this is a your there there is no Scala.js dependency for this particular library, so it's not going to work. So you'll have to do something else. Yeah. There will be some way to do conditional logic, like for example, on Scala.js, you need to bring in a Scala Java time dependency if you're using the Java time artifacts. It needs to tell you that as well, and it ne- needs to give you the ability to enable certain things on just that module. And uh, a third thing would be uh, queries. So I think that's a proposal from Eugene Yokotai as well in the SBT when you can have like a query. So you can say um, SBT run tests and then you do like a selector for which projects to run it on. Mm. Say projects that are Scala 2.12, platform equals JS and whatever other things. Like yeah. if you have all of that, you can have matrix builds in, on your GitHub CIs. So that would be much easier rather yeah. than having to m- juggle this many uh different things like plugins and um, percentage signs. Yeah, because one thing that comes to mind right away with that even is you mentioned uh, SBT project matrix. And if I'm not mistaken, the Scala.js documentation doesn't even mention that. It mentions using cross-project. So 
then you have this whole other issue where somebody who's not maybe super familiar with the different possibilities of how to add support are just going to be reading the documentation reading about cross project and adding cross project and then you have to ask you have to add the cross project plugin for scala.js and then you also have to add the other cross project uh, plugin for native as well yeah. as the plugin for scala.js and as well as the project the plugin for scala native so it's essentially adding four different spt plugins to your build if you really want cross platform support which seems like a lot if you're not super familiar with it you're like why why am i adding four plugins to my project for this but Another thing you hit on that I that I wanted to talk about, um, and it's actually something I've talked to to Ali, who I talked to last uh, last episode about offline a little bit, was uh, support for different versions and platforms in your tooling. Because, like for example, if you're a Metals user um, and you have this project matrix, right? Uh, you're not always getting editor support for every one of those build targets while you're in a specific file, and the compilation may be a little bit different and you may have errors in one and not the other or how do you know what version you're actually choosing and it's actually really difficult to do that i don't know if the intellij story is is better for that necessarily but how has your sort of tooling support meant or have you hit on the issue that i just mentioned at all um i think intellij just doesn't support in the community edition like scala.js projects or cross-build projects at all so i don't think it's a it's a thing um And I think there's a t- ticket on the IntelliJ tracker for this to support some of the... Because it, it kind of trips up on the different sources being... Well, different projects pointing at the same sources. Because sure. that's the usual case. Um, I remember when I was working on uh, Scala 3 support for MDoc, I actually liked the fact that the shared sources were displaying diagnostics from both Scala 3 targets and the Scala 2.13 targets okay. because they were supposed to be cross-compiled. Like I, I knew exactly that what I'm doing right now is not necessarily going to work in the Scala 3 target, mm-hmm. even though... So I would rather... If all of this was much quicker, because I think the issue is that you get a massive pollution of diagnostics in your build, because when you're adding a new feature to a cross-compiled project, it's going to report the same diagnostics from all three different projects. And uh, I think one solution is to disable certain build targets and say, okay, I'm just writing the Scala JS Scala 3 version of my entire project, that's all I care about right now. That's one solution. Another one, some sort of more clever grouping, I think. Uh, I'd love to see that. I don't know what it's going to look like, but um, I like the way... Um, um, I had to write a little bit of C recently, and I hope we're going to talk about that because yeah. the, the trauma uh, and the injuries are still healing, so um, I, I need this outlet. Uh, but I was using the Clang D language server uh, mm-hmm. based on Clang and their uh, and LibClang. And what I liked about Clang D is that it basically says if there's too many diagnostics in the file, it tells you up front on the first line of the file saying, too many diagnostics, I'm just going to stop now. So it, it stops reporting on the rest of the locations. And that's actually quite useful because if the file is completely broken, I don't need the editor to struggle to render the 400 diagnostics in the entire file. Because if it's broken, something is seriously broken. Like maybe I opened a bracket somewhere in the wrong place. I don't need the compiler to redo the whole thing. So at first I thought, well, that's silly. You're, you're a client. You're written in C++. You're supposed to be super performant. But then as I was using uh, the language server, I was like, Oh, yeah, just limit the amount of noise that you're giving me. Like, if the file is so broken that there's, like, 55 diagnostics already, 
I'm not going to read every single one of them. I'm going to look for the one single source of the problem rather than try to fix them one by one because it's very rare that there is 55 legit problems in the file um, unless you're doing like a major refactoring. It's probably one thing spawning like 10 of those diagnostics. So I think it's the same with the cross-platform, cross-scala compilation. If you are in a situation where all of your targets are giving you 500 diagnostics per file and it's all very slow, um, I I wish the language server would just limit the number of diagnostics and gave me like a clear grouping of where they're coming from. So I look for the source. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, I guess what comes to mind right away, at least on the Meadow side, and I think maybe a way to avoid some of that, maybe, because what you mentioned, for example, the brace thing, Missing a brace is a syntactic issue that you can detect even before you compile. And that's one thing that is nice about Metals, for example, is that if you would have that, you'd probably still have a bunch of errors, but you wouldn't actually have to save your file in order to, to know that because like the Scala meta parsing would fail and say, hey, yeah. this is you're probably missing something here. So maybe that works, but yeah, you, you still get a, a ton of different ton of different noise. Um I definitely want to talk more about language servers, definitely want to talk about Scala native. Um What's your what's your story with Scala Native? Like, how did you get started with Scala Native, and what are you doing with it? <laughs> um, Go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Scala Native. Honestly, um, I think my first introduction to Scala Native was actually through one of the projects that um, um, Oli mentioned in his last podcast. Because the first version of something that eventually became Smithy for us mm-hmm. used to have a native module inside of it, okay. and I saw the code that Oli wrote for it. And I was like. This is horrifying. This is giving me terrible flashbacks from uh, have, having to write C++ back at uni. And because um, there was libraries in there, I had to fix a module and put a library. So none of that made sense. And I couldn't understand why would one need it uh, to be to begin with. But I knew that Scala Native existed. I knew that it was abandoned for a while. And then as Scala Native uh, got resurrected by the Scala Center and the, the Scala 2.12 support landed. Then Scala 2.13 support landed. Everybody got excited and very surprised and uh, the library maintainers started adding the Scala Native support. And then uh, Wojciech Mazur, who was uh, working on Scala Native from Virtus Lab, he... Absolute machine. Like, he, his hair is excellent. Have you seen his hair? I, I was, <laughs> I've seen pictures of him. His, his hair is just... Gorgeous. I, I don't know. Uh, difficult to look away. But he's also an absolute machine. And then he started landing the first kind of snapshots of Scala 3 support. Mm-hmm. At that point, I was fully invested in Scala 3 uh, for my own personal projects. I started doing some stuff at work as well. But it was mostly like a personal thing. I really enjoyed the syntax. I enjoyed the syntax, but mostly I enjoyed the... Um, the syntax updating. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to talk about that because this is just painful. Uh, I enjoyed the syntax, but also I enjoyed the outrage that people kind of expressed on Twitter about the syntax. So it, it felt righteous to use it as much as possible. I don't you know. wanted to be um, right in the middle of the storm. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, well, f- first of all, I wanted to form my own informed opinion because I worked with Python before. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to have my own opinion rather than join either the opposition rage or the support rage. Like, mm-hmm. for- form your own opinion, get burnt, and then, then you get know, real. Yeah. The thing is, once you form your own opinion, to be honest, rage kind of goes goes away. Like, mm. there's a lot more... I don't think there's anything in IT which is either good or bad. Like, the, it, it's nothing uh, as black and white as Twitter would <laughs> make you want to believe. So um, once you form your own opinion, it's going to be nuanced and you, you the rage is just going to die out. Mm. That that was with me in the, the 
kind of white space syntax. I was against yeah. it in the beginning. Love it now. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And then Scala 3 native, I was like, oh, that is really cool because a lot of things that you can do in Scala 3 specifically inlining, um, like actual inlining, not as a hint to the compiler, but inline the methods and their entire bodies directly. That is actually quite good for writing native code. Yeah. So y- you can do a lot of initialization without having to go through like function calls. You can inline entire blocks. You can recursively inline certain things. So that was that looked very interesting to me because um, I wanted to write more efficient like for loops, which look like nice Scala constructs, but are in line to be just a while loop without any misdirection to produce the fastest code possible. Um, so... I was using Scala Native for that. I also wrote a lot of Advent of Code, uh, 2021, I think. I don't know. One of those. I think no, I think 2020. Yeah, 2021 Advent of Code. I wrote a lot of it in Scala Native yeah. and parts of it in Scala CLI, I think, when, when it was just being released. Yeah. So just trying all those new things. And I enjoyed it. It, it, was, it was fun. It brought back um, not-so-fond memories of uh, manual memory management and all that. But with a hint of Scala Native, where you don't have to do that, like you, you still have the garbage collector, it's still there for all the traditional Scala collection functions and all that. Mm. You don't need to do anything. A lot of the libraries cross compile, so that was pretty exciting, and you could do a lot of things. So, for example, I'm uh, one of the apps that I'm building is using a uh, CLI parsing library called Decline. It, ha- it hasn't been published for Scala Native three, but I'm using the two thirteen version of it. So it's it's almost like magic to me that even in the Scala native land, I can still use that whole Scala 3 application reading Scala 2.13 library. Yeah. So uh, for me, native was interesting because I, it's one of the frontiers that Scala hasn't conquered yet. Like the, the front end development in Scala JS is very possible and a lot of people do it and I'm doing it for um, a lot of projects. So the JVM, pretty good. Uh, supports all the modern J, uh, Java runtimes, very good. But the one thing that is missing is just n- pure native compilation to machine mm. code. And uh, Scala Native is using LLVM, LLVM backend for that, so yeah. it doesn't need to do the translation, which is great, which means that they can focus on taking the high-level Scala code, converting it to an internal representation, which is expressive enough to be converted to what LLVM understands eventually. Mm-hmm. And then that can be converted to machine code with lots of optimizations. So a lot of languages work this way yeah. these days. So I feel like one of the questions that people ask, or at least that I've even seen them ask, is, well, why should I use Scala Native when I can just use you know, Grail to get a native image of my app? Like, what's the difference there? So... There is a database answer. So uh, Wojciech Mazur, whom I've mentioned before, he has published a blog post about comparing both the speeds and the memory usage of Scala Native and uh, Grail. And Scala Native wins on most of the benchmarks, and the benchmarks there are designed to stress memory or performance. So Mm. Scala Native is quite performant. That that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, Grail doesn't have its uses. But I think, first of all, Scala Native has a very... A very simple way to access a lot of low-level constructs like manual memory allocations for those little bits where you think, you know what, I think I can go with unsafe memory allocation for this one because it's just going to be cheaper, it's going to be faster. Yeah. Um, you can also a lot easier integrate with like C libraries and uh, C++ libraries that expose a C-like interface. So, I mean, assuming that you have something to generate bindings for it, I mean, mm-hmm. I wish that thing existed. So... <laughs> 
Hint, hint. <laughs> Premonition. Yeah. And um, just guiding this so, conversation. <laughs> and um, and and the binary sizes are actually much smaller. So the binary size is that uh, like one of the apps that I deployed, which was it's a non-trivial app. There's a lot of code in there. Um, it's like a, a five megabyte binary. I've never seen Graal producing anything less than thirty. Uh, and one app that I'm building on CI, it's always in the 38, 40 uh, megabyte mark, yeah. sometimes even larger with the recent versions of Graal. So um, I, to be honest, I don't think binary sizes are that important if you have good internet. It's not, but it's sort of, it's interesting because you can get pretty much the same thing because um, if you're not using a lot of like asynchronous stuff and multi-threading, which Scala Native doesn't support, then you can get by with Scala Native and produce really decent binaries. Mm. And it's also faster to produce those binaries. GraalVM takes a long time to create a native image sure. because it needs to do a lot more work. It operates on such a lower level in terms of the bytecode manipulation that yeah. it takes a long time. And I don't have a ton of experience with Scala Native, but, use, but producing Graal images, some, some of the times that I have, some of the errors you get if, if, if you <laughs> aren't able to produce an image is just like, so hard to understand <laughs> and it's yeah. basically just paste it in the internet and hope somebody hit on it and hope that you need to include some random thing to actually be able to produce produce yeah or like a reflection experience. config right yes. like a reflection config for because scala native basically says there is no reflection forget about it it's just like it doesn't exist so you don't get it it will never work just deal with it gralvm says that you can have reflection you just need to tell us up front exactly where it's going to occur and like add those things so that we can write them in a particular way. Yeah. Um, and then, but when you hit on those problems, it's pretty horrific. Like I, I don't understand any of the terminology that I see in the error messages and any, any of the phases that it does, I also don't understand. Hmm. So it's been difficult, even though it's a remarkable piece of tech, like GraalVM yeah. native image is just incredible. So maybe one of the answers to my next question is something we'll talk about in a little bit, but, and it's probably like a chicken in the egg problem, but like Scala.js, you've mentioned, you know, it's very possible to do front-end development in Scala now using Scala.js. The ecosystem is, there's a lot of stuff there. A lot of libraries are cross-published. The story for Scala Native is not quite there, we'll say, because if not, I mean, we don't, you don't, you barely see any projects out there actually targeting specifically Scala Native. So like, what do you think needs to sort of happen in order for, you know, the, that to reach the popularity of, of even just Scala.js? Uh, that's a good question. And I think, so if we go back a little bit in history, so Scala Native earned a reputation of not being published for any of the modern Scala versions. Mm -hmm. A lot of people stopped following the progress on that project, even though if you look back at the older issues, you will see a lot of familiar faces from uh, open source maintainers asking yeah. questions because people got very excited. Like, oh, you can build binaries that you can literally statically link against some of the libraries and they will just have no dependencies. They are... You can launch a binary and it just works. And it's a small binary. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then the interest waned a little bit because the mainstream Scala development just leapfrogged uh, Scala Native in terms of the Scala versions, 2.12, 2.13, and then 3. So I think that did a disservice to Scala Native quite a lot. Like people, I think, even well-versed in the Scala ecosystem are still assuming that Scala Native is lagging behind, even though it's published for all of the modern versions of 2.12, 2.13, and Scala 3. But you still need to fight against that perception that, oh, what if it, what if it's going to get abandoned again? Yeah. Uh, and like, because as we talked about, maintainers don't want to increase the burden on them. Yeah. <laughs> they want to 
decrease that as much as possible. So you add Scala Native to the build, and then as you add new features, you're like, is this ever going to be supported? Is it yeah. ever going to work? So What's the plus the, factor of the maintenance of this other project I'm relying on? Exactly, exactly. So I'm glad that Scala Center is doing like regular updates and they have Whitechish working on the on this thing. But um, I, for just, Scala Native... I don't know the answer yeah. to this, but is it actually the Scala Center that's working on Scala Native or is it primarily Virtus Lab that's sort of taken the, uh, taken the reins? So... I don't really know how sort of the whole in- arrangement works because, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because <laughs> you probably know it better. Yeah, because I was going to say, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's almost like, just to give credit where credit is due, I'm pretty sure it's almost entirely Virtus Lab that has been working on, on, on Scala Native. Because as far as I know, like the, the regular employees at the Scala Center aren't, aren't doing a lot on, on Scala Native. So, yeah, so I'm in pretty sure it's... Beginning, yeah. Okay, yeah. In the very beginning, I saw that uh, Sebastian Doran ah, was okay, okay. reviewing the PRs and doing all that. Um, so I'm pretty sure. And the Scala sure. Center announced that they are picking up and the Virtus Lab are going to be. Ah, so okay, okay. there's some sort of partnership. So it's not really just Virtus coming in and saying, like, we are now doing Scala, uh, <laughs> Scala Native work. So, um, but I don't know exactly how this arrangement works. I see Virtus still merging the PRs and adding support mm. for, like, Scala 2. Th- what was it? 2.12.16 that was released recently yeah. or 18. Um, 16 so it's still happening it's still there yeah. but for Scala Native to achieve that popularity it's going to be difficult because the the front end world has exploded dramatically like everything is now written in JavaScript right mm-hmm. like you have Electron apps the thing that we're using right now to record this is just a like a JavaScript application in the browser so yeah. there is a much wider market and people look around themselves and they will see oh Technically, this is just JavaScript. Therefore, I can use Scala.js for it. I don't need to learn JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's the appeal of it. I am a Scala developer, and I want to do front-end. That was the appeal for me, for example. Sure. I wanted a graphic feedback of something that I'm doing. I mean, CLIs are great and all, and libraries are great, but I want to I want to, I want to see pretty colors. I want to see buttons moving around, like, sue me. I like it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and so uh, Scala.js is not really in a niche in terms of what, what a tool it is. Yeah. Scala Native, on the other hand, is solving sort of... A, a, it's, it's a difficult battle ahead of it. Because, yeah. like, Rust was used for a lot of CLI tools and, like, reimagining of CLI tools and how you can do a better tool there, a new terminal over there, like, GPU rendering, all that. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, so Scala Native is entering sort of part of that niche, I think. And um, it's, it's going to be difficult to supplant the existing players in there. Like, Go has been there forever, and it's been used to do very similar things. Rust has been there forever. I think... For Scala Native to become popular, it needs to be uh, touted not like as an alternative to existing native system pro- programming languages, but rather, hey, are you a Scala developer that wants to build small binaries and like applications with very low memory footprint? Then use Scala Native yeah. for this. So going after the Scala developers, I think it's the same thing with Scala JS. You will not be, you are unlikely to convert javascript developers or typescript developers but you are likely to convert back-end scala developers to try scala js as a front-end language so yeah. i think it's the same with scala native as an alternative because when i was uh, building the the twatmate application for my blog series uh, the memory footprint of it was spectacular like i've never seen an application taking load that well within the 110 megabytes that it was occupying in memory yeah it was pretty impressive like i was i was just it's very, very surprised. 
Well, that's a good segue because you said that word and that's not how I was pronouncing it. <laughs> so tell us about, you know, whatever that thing is you just mentioned um, and how yeah. you pronounce it. So it's pronounced Twatmate, and Twatmate, uh, I'm going to okay. make it the biggest social media platform of 2000 and I think 23 because I'm, I'm I'm missing the boat on 2022 because I just don't want to do it. But I'm, it's going to be the biggest social platform in 2023. Um, okay, it was a, it, <laughs> It's going to be horrible. You heard it like, here it's, first. <laughs> it's a platform just designed for thought leaders because uh, we all know that thought leaders are they need a place to thought thought lead, and uh, they they currently use Twitter. But in there, they are mixed up with a lot of, you know, the other people, let's just say, not thought leaders, like the, the lower classes and all that. So I wanted to create a social media platform just for thought leaders to thought lead. That's the title of it, to be honest. Uh, but from a technical point of view, the app was an exercise of building a Scala native application, like a web application yeah. uh, and a Scala JS front end um, and using just the native libraries for it. Mm-hmm. And it was to showcase the thing that I've been working on for quite a while now, which is the binding generator for C libraries and Scala 3 native. Okay. So Twatmate came to be as just exploration of those ideas and uh, to test out the thing that I wrote that generates the bindings to Postgres mm. and OpenSSL. Can I actually use it to build a web application with like authentication, hashing of the passwords and like da- database access, like all of the things that we expect from a normal application. Can you yeah. do that now? And can it handle any meaningful traffic and not fall over like all the time? And um, when I finished it, more or less, um, I decided to do a write-up because I don't think there's enough write-ups out there for like a full-scale application building uh, in Scala. There's yeah. a lot of how to do a library. There's a lot of how to do testing, but there's not much for here is start to finish how to build hmm. and deploy a non-trivial thing. And that's I mean, the irony of this being a tooling podcast, yeah. uh, I'm more into building applications than I am into building things that people use to build other things. Oh, okay. This is um, the end of the interview. So thanks okay, for coming. Okay, well, bye, <laughs> Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's very true because I'm in my head right now, I'm trying to think of other examples of that. And the only other one that I know of, like right off the top of my head, would be uh, who's also been on the show, Gabriel uh, Volpe's uh, trading application. Oh, yeah. He, he has yeah. everything from like a full, huge setup to I think he just rewrote the front end, which used to be in Elm, to now use Tyrion instead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's another example of that. But, uh, I'm trying to get better at show notes. So afterwards in the show notes, I'll put some links to this, but you have an entire blog series on this then, right? Yeah. So it's, it's split into five parts and one of the parts is literally building a library for Postgres access. And it was the most arduous thing ever because I was trying to replicate skunk uh, by Rob Norris, which, um, Spoiler alert, I'm using in, in a new blog series that, <laughs> that I'm writing currently. Uh, so I was trying to replicate that, and it, it was difficult. Like, I'm not used to native development. I had to deal with a lot of C stuff. I had to deal with my fair share of horrifying memory leaks. Um, but I also, I had that experience of not trusting the tool. So since the last time I wrote C or C++, it, it's been like 10 years, and uh, things have improved slightly. There's a thing called address sanitizer now, which you can enable in your native applications, and it will check memory access and like various problems with memory leaks and like use after free. All of the stuff that I would do routinely when I was writing C and C++, there were mm-hmm. no checks for that. Uh, but address sanitizer has been used in quite a few places now. So 
Um, at some point, I enabled it in my application because it kept crashing. And I saw an exception from it. And, and I looked at the exception and something inside of me, like a little voice was telling me, Anton, you're working on a native application. Like none of the exceptions are going to be helpful. Just forget about it. Like you, you'll, you'll have to figure this out. No one is there to help you. So I refused, like physically refused to read the exception. And then I read it a little bit closer after three days of battling. And it turns out that yes, yes, I was leaking memory. Like that's why everything was crashing. And address sanitizer picked up exact place where that was happening. Uh, so I, yeah, I think I'm battling against that perception that the the tooling in the native world is still it's still not not great mm. um i would say um but it's it's getting much better now like it's so much better than it used to be yeah. which is impressive so for five part series uh, building front end in scala js which was really fun i was using laminar and uh, i had to you know going from a tutorial or from the mini apps that i did before to yeah. something stateful and actually usable by people that was quite a journey like that it, yeah. really really different perspective and out of total curiosity your website is and i think you're also like your github group is called indoor vivens yeah what does the name yeah. come from <laughs> um okay so that was at, at the kind of uh at the beginning of the open source journey i i decided that i wanted to publish the some of the libraries that i was building yeah uh just because it's it's easier. So SBT doesn't have a good story with like source dependency. So I needed them to go somewhere. And I was like, I'm going to use SBT CI release, which is, again, magical tooling done by Olaf. No idea how. He, he's got an eye for this thing. Like, I don't know. It, it just works. So it worked straight away. I followed his tutorial, which is beautiful. And um, so I, I was going to publish it. But I needed domain name and... Um, you know, I'm very creative. So Indoor Vivens was created during the lockdowns so i was indoors uh, but also uh, it's an anagram of my name uh, which i'm very proud of it's a full anagram of my name so there it is cat is out of the bag I'm, I'm very proud of it and still i'm i think it's the best thing i've ever done wow <laughs> i don't even know how to follow up on that then if that's the yeah best thing. yeah Impressive. that's it well let's talk about one of your <laughs> lesser projects then that isn't as good as yeah. naming this project and that is SN Bindgen, which you mm-hmm. like alluded to before. But yeah, introduce us sort of what is SFB SN Bindgen and like for non C people, what does this mean? What does it do? Because yeah, right in the site when I opened it up and I read, you know, a set of tools to generate Scala native bindings for C libraries from header files that for somebody who potentially works only on the JVM that doesn't make a ton of sense unless you reach back into the old see that you learned a long time yeah. ago so yeah what what is it uh, i mean please pay attention to how expressive and creative the name is right because <laughs> uh, you know so so you, you can see where my creative side is coming from um your naming is uh, just <laughs> bar none it's incredible impeccable yeah, yeah impeccable and um so okay a, a little bit of history sn bindgen is a tool which is specifically written in scala 3 and it's only using c uh, there is another tool which existed before for scala native called scala native bindgen hmm. i think uh, or bindings i don't know uh, but it it has a large c++ code base and my first attempt was trying to get that to work basically yeah. to get that to work with modern versions of scala that didn't work out because my c++ foo is has reduced dramatically in the last 10 years and I couldn't get it, it to build even like I, I, nothing worked. So I got really frustrated. And the idea was, can I build a similar tool, but just written in Scala with very, very minimal amount of just C, no C++. So 
Why is that tool necessary? Um, there is a lot of C libraries out there or C++ libraries that we are familiar with, like OpenSSL, for example. So OpenSSL mm-hmm. is a like a staple library in pre- pretty much anywhere. Like everything uses it and uh, it exposes a fairly stable C API. So the, the problem is there's like a difference between ABI and API. So API is something that you would see like in a header file. It's a source level definition of functions, arguments, structures, and all that. So if you use that source file in the same compilation unit as your sources, the, the compiler can check that your calls to those functions are correct because it'll just check the types, it'll check the number of arguments. That is all easy. Problems start elsewhere. Um, when you are um, when you compile the OpenSSL library separately, you have it in a binary format, and you compile your program against OpenSSL, and it's also in a binary format, so you're mushing them together in a binary format. There is no sources, there's no function names anymore, nothing exists anymore. So, um, And then you want from your program to call OpenSSL functions, like uh, calculate the SHA-256 uh, hash for this particular string. So this is called an application binary uh, interface, where basically there are certain specifications for processes like x86, the the Intel ones, ARM64, which say if you want to call a C function, you need to um, take the arguments and place them in the following registers on the processor and then invoke the C function. Another thing is how is a particular thing, like a struct, so um, I think OpenSSL has like a a hashing context structure, which Mm -hmm. has to have a particular memory layout and et cetera. And memory layouts get really complicated with like padding and uh, alignments and all of those horrible things. But because they are in memory, uh, you need to match that binary format byte by byte so that the invocation of the function within OpenSSL produces the correct result. And it puts the correct result in the correct place in memory so that you can later interpret it. Because the way you want to interpret it is it's going to put like a hash of 60-something characters, for example, um, into memory as like a sequence of bytes. And it's going to be zero terminated, for example. So um, you can look at the um, header files for OpenSSL and you can generate Scala code Mm. That will basically replicate the memory layout of of, of the struct. So, sorry, I was just getting a call halfway through this. How, how rude. Don't they um, know that you're in the middle of a podcast? Uh, they actually, well, in all fairness, they don't because I didn't tell them. Um, so that that's pretty embarrassing. Uh, I should have. You didn't tell everybody. No, I'm sorry. I mean, it was a surprise. My family is all here. They're, I mean, <laughs> the listeners will not see it. And... Um, so you can generate those uh, structs and the function calls and etc. And they have to match in terms of the byte layout mm. what the C compiler will compile OpenSSL code to so that when you invoke that function in a binary space, it interprets every single position correctly. So if, if it says that this is supposed to be a pointer to this structure, this is supposed to be like a three-byte header with particular numbers in them, you, the thing that you're putting in the registers from your Scala native program has to match that perfectly in the mm-hmm. binary format because the source code is, just doesn't exist anymore. Um, so this is the application binary interface. And um, 
it's very important because a lot of the things that uh, a lot of the code that you are invoking is done uh, in the like dynamic libraries. So mm -hmm. on macOS, there would be they would have an extension called uh, dylib. Uh, on Linux, it's a .so. On Windows, is .dll. So a lot of the code is compiled and it's available in there in binary format. So your application doesn't actually inv include a copy of the OpenSSL functions. It invokes them over this binary protocol by putting stuff in memory and doing a very particular thing. So um, the SN bindgen is there to kind of consume a header file from a, from a known library, hmm. generate the Scala code with correct uh, structured definitions and correct byte alignments and like make sure that everything is aligned correctly so that when you invoke this function, the like after it's been compiled, it will be transformed in a way that it will place all the right binary arguments into all the right places and call the right functions and receive and interpret the results correctly. This allows you to build against C libraries or C++ libraries mm. that have like C, C definitions. That all seems kind of magical to me. So yeah, like that's crazy. Um, what, when, so like, just to make sure I understand it, like, let's say, for example, I wanted to use like libov or something to, uh, yeah, just utilize that would, and I was starting a project with SN Bindgen, would I also need to somehow include that library or since it's already on my system, it knows just how, like, uh, what, what, what would the process be like if I wanted to do that? So, um, Everything is held together by a very, very thin bit of rope okay. uh, in, in the modern systems. Basically, there are special locations on your system where the applications will be looking for library files yeah. and where the compilers will be looking for header files. Those locations are usually known. You can, you can talk to like a Clang compiler and ask it where the locations are, uh, but they are special. The operating system will set them. So if you wanted to build bindings against libuv, um, you can clone the libuv source code and use mm -hmm. the header file, just point the binding generator to the header file. Yeah. Uh, that will work. But when you're actually building the program, you need to have either a statically linked libuv, uh, which you can produce using a different compilation procedure. But if you just installed libuv globally, like brew install yeah. libuv or whatever, um, it will be in the location that homebrew manages, basically. Yeah. There will be a dialeep. So you need to... Um, it, it's very likely that if you just add a flag to your client compilation, which is hyphen l, hyphen l uv, uh, because, of course... The, the library names, they will be adding lib automatically. So if you want to use libuv, you need to say hyphen l uv. If you want to use cmark, which is a markdown implementation, you just need to, it's going to be on your system as lib cmark, okay. but you, you need to use the name l cmark. So it's all, it's a very, very unfortunate uh, like convention, I, I think, unnecessary, I believe. Mm. So uh, you just need to add that, uh, flag to your compilation to your linking arguments and if the libuv is installed on your system your binary will link correctly and you will be able to run it and if the translation from the header files to the binary interface is done correctly you will be able to invoke libuv and that's all quite easy um, alternatively yeah. you can install you can build libuv yourself it's actually quite quick to do uh, as long as you have like compilers installed in your system yeah. and you can point to the local files and build your binary statically against it so that it actually copies the functions from libuv library yeah. into your binary and there's no dependency on the dynamic library interesting okay 
And in this entire process, what has been sort of like the hardest part for you to figure out and to get working? Uh, I had to use libclang, and libclang is basically what uh, the Clang's language server is actually based on as well. So okay. it's a C-only interface to um, to LLVM and Clang compiler, so that it allows you to parse the C source files and interpret the AST and do all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Very good for when you're building language server protocol yeah. or a binding generator. The hardest bit was really just figuring out how many things are legal in C. Like, it's <laughs> it's terrific. Just so many different ways to specify anonymous structures and what they're supposed to mean. So many names, so many ways to reference certain things, so many yeah. ways to redefine them. Uh, it was very difficult to cover all the possible cases, especially when you're generating code. Like, there's still... Uh, so I have an, a repo which has like 20 examples, not not 20, okay, maybe 15 examples of different libraries that I'm using. Adding each one of them led to a bug in the binding generator because it would using it would be using a different feature of C to specify a particular thing. Mm. Like, and just recently when I thought, okay, I fixed all the possible stupid bugs with it, uh, someone tried to build against like a um, X11 the the, the graphics yeah. library for uh, the Linux platforms. And it turns out there is a way to specify a struct in a way that it will be rendered as an empty pointer in my binding generator because it actually just client reported it having no fields. So, so many ways to do similar things. It's been very difficult to keep track of because I, I don't write C on a day to day basis. Yeah. Um, so, I was pretty horrified to find out how many ways to interpret that. And when you're trying to reconstruct that structure from AST, because you don't see the developer's intent, right? Yeah. I think AST is low level for this, because you want to analyze the function call, but all you see is an AST, and AST and C can include terrifying things. Mm. Um, and I had to build like manual bindings to libclang, so I can then boot- bootstrap the binding generator, so I can generate the bindings for libclang with it. So yeah. um, this whole process was fun as well. Yeah.